This is NTS Radio. Hello and welcome to In Good Company on NTS Radio, a monthly show for working women with me, Atege Uagba. I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women, and I'm also the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Little Black Book, a modern career guide for working women that you can find on Amazon or at all good bookstores. As always, on today's show, I'm going to be talking about work, but I'm going to be tackling that from a slightly different angle today and looking at a form of work that's as relevant to your life outside the office as your life inside it, and that you're also possibly not even aware that you're actually doing. I'm talking about emotional labour. You might already be familiar with that phrase, given that conversations around emotional labour have really surged in popularity in recent years, and it's become one of the key battlegrounds of contemporary feminist debate. Back in September 2017, journalist Gemma Hartley wrote an article for Harper's Bazaar titled Women Aren't Nags, We're Just Fed Up, about her experiences of trying to divvy up emotional labour evenly within her own marriage. The article immediately went viral and has since been shared nearly a million times, which prompted Gemma to expand on the subject in her new book, Fed Up. In it, she sets out to define emotional labour, as well as offer up solutions on how we can better navigate it. And by we, I mean both men and women. It's a fascinating subject that's relevant to pretty much every aspect of your day-to-day life, and I'm really pleased to have been able to have an in-depth conversation with Gemma about her book. Also coming up, an Ask a Tega segment in which I respond to a listener who's concerned about the lack of diversity in their office and not sure how best to address it. First up, here's my conversation with Gemma. Just a heads up that given Gemma's base stateside in Nevada, we conducted this conversation via Skype, so the sound quality might sound a little bit different from previous episodes. So... Fed Up came to be when I wrote an article for Harper's Bazaar uh, back in 2017 entitled Women Aren't Nags, We're Just Fed Up. Mm. And it went really viral and it was all about emotional labor and not the original academic uh, definition of emotional labor, but an expanded version which talked about the ways that the emotion work we do in the home and also the mental work that we do in the home intersect and compound and really frustrate us. And I illustrated that um, in a way from a story on Mother's Day when my husband sort of missed the mark on uh, doing some emotional labor for me as a part of my gift and then left me to take care of the kids and clean up the house and do all of these things. And it was just a very taxing day. Mm. Um, And it went, it went so viral. It absolutely shocked me. And after that, I had um, agents come to me and ask if I could write a book on this subject. And I had been dwelling on it since Mother's Day. And, (laughs) um, but yeah, that was sometime in April. And then Uh, It was about September by the time the piece published. And so I had been, you know, dwelling on this subject for a really long time. And so I was so excited when that happened. And I was able to start writing a book about it because I had been jotting down notes and, you know, making all of these mental notes all of these months. And 
I was just ready to dive into this subject when it came time for it. Mm. And why do you think that that article went so viral? Because I remember reading it at the time. I think what comes up over and over again is that this specific definition of emotional labor, which combines the mental and emotional work, really did not have a name before. Uh, Everything was sort of piecemeal and didn't deal with this specific type of overwhelm that comes from being the person who is relied on for all of these things. Mm. And so having a language for it, I think, really changed things for a lot of women. And I think that's why it went so viral, because we didn't have language to talk about this before. And it's so validating to be able to put your finger on a term and say, yes, this is my experience. This Mm. is something that I recognize so deeply. Mm. And what exactly is emotional labor? How do you define it? Because you mentioned earlier that there is a sort of, there are various ways of looking at it, but how have you defined it for your book? For my book, I've defined emotional labor as the unpaid, usually invisible and unnoticed work that mostly women do to keep those around them comfortable and happy. Mm. So like I said, it's that combination of the mental work, you know, all of the tracking to keep everyone on track, while also doing the emotional work of making sure that you're asking in the right tone and making sure everyone stays happy with you while you're being the mastermind, basically, Mm. um, around what's going on. And your definition is definitely a lot broader than, so I think the original sort of person that coined the term emotional labour was Arlie Hostchild, who wrote The Managed Heart, and she referred to emotional labour as the work of sort of managing one's own emotions that's required in certain professions, whether it's a flight attendant and they have to be really happy and cheery or a nurse, you have to be really warm and, you know, very much service roles and care-based roles. But your definition is definitely broader than that. Can you explain that to me and why you felt it was necessary? Yes. So this is actually a little bit of um, a strange spot to be in. When the original article came out, I had pitched it as something along the lines of, you know, the mental load is dragging down inequality. Mm. And as a freelancer, I usually don't get to look at the headline um, that they put up on it until Mm. it's live. And so they had put uh, emotional labor is the job men still don't understand Mm. as the subhead for it. And so suddenly everything that I was talking about in the article became emotional labor. Um, So I didn't actually intend to redefine emotional labor so widely. Um, But once that article went really viral, it had already changed in, you know, popular culture. People were referring to this marriage of mental work and emotion work as emotional labor. When it came time to write the book, uh, we we floated some other terms. I, I talked about maybe calling it invisible labor or invisible care-based labor, but the fact of it was that the word had already changed. The definition of emotional labor was, you know, already taking off and had legs of its own. And so that's why it turned out to be emotional labor um, as this much broader definition. And I think, you know, it made a lot of sense to go to go with that term because people were already talking about it and it was already changing, you know, with or without my permission. 
for anyone listening who's kind of hearing the theoretical side of it and thinking, but I still don't actually understand what emotional labour is. Like, Can you give me some concrete examples of what emotional labour might look like at home or in your personal life? Yes. So um, to give a personal example, the one that I used in the original article was that I had asked my husband to hire a cleaning service and the gift that I said I wanted wasn't really in the cleaning itself, um, but in all of the steps that go on behind it. So mm. calling around to get prices, asking friends for, you know, recommendations, um, making sure that it works within everyone's schedule and doing all of this sort of mental calculations that lead up to a specific task. And we do that every day, usually uh, in a, in a myriad of ways. When I'm getting the kids out the door in the morning, I have to make sure that I'm using the right tone of voice when I ask them to put their shoes on in the mm. morning. And I have to think about what everyone's likes and dislikes are when I'm preparing a meal or preparing, you know, a plan for what we're going to eat for the week. Um, so there's all of this mental work. And it really comes down to all of that mental work revolves around the happiness of others. So I am constantly thinking about in my plans who is going to, you know, who who is going to be happy at the end of this. And the answer for most women is everyone. Everyone's going to be happy at the end of this because I am taking every last detail into account. Uh, but usually in that everyone, we're not necessarily including ourselves and we're really burning ourselves out um, doing all of this planning work and all of this emotion work. Mm. And But what about someone who says that they actually enjoy doing that sort of thing? Because I, I mean, I definitely don't enjoy doing emotional labour, but I will confess that I am quite a controlling person. I think my friends would agree. So like if we're going on holiday or something like that, I will definitely want to be in charge of a lot of the planning and details and that sort of thing. Um, and I don't know whether I enjoy that, but I certainly feel compelled to do it. Um, but what about people who say that they, you know, they enjoy cooking and planning and organizing that sort of thing? Is it then still emotional labor? I think it is definitely still emotional labor. And one of the things I really try to drive home in the book is that emotional labor is not bad. It's not inherently bad. It's a really useful life skill. And so it's not that we're trying to get rid of emotional labor, but that we need more people to understand what emotional labor entails and how to do it so that there's not just one person doing it for everyone around them. Um, but for people who, you know, say that they really enjoy this type of work, I believe it. I mean, there are parts that I really enjoy. For example, I talk about, you know, the vacation planning mm. sort of emotional labor that uh, goes into stuff. I love that. Same. I mean, I, <laughs> I thrive on it. Um, but, you know, I, I've just recently been doing this with my husband as we've been getting ready for our 10 year anniversary to take a trip. And, you know, we, we had been doing it for a while and I just got burnt out and had to like walk away from the computer for a while. And I was like, this is a lot. This is a lot to take in. And so he sort of took over and, you know, started to make those plans and bring me into the loop instead of the other way around where I'm like, okay, this is what we're doing and this is what we're doing. And does that sound good? 
And it's nice to have someone who understands how to step in and fill that role when you're feeling burnout. And if you don't mind me asking, how did your writing that article and then this book sort of go down with your husband? How did he react? Has it transformed the division of emotional labor? Because you rely quite heavily on examples from your own personal life, obviously in the initial essay, but again in the book. Um, And I wonder whether that has, you know, changed things for you in terms of how the two of you divide emotional labor. I absolutely think it has. I mean, I can't imagine um, that my life would look the way it does now had I not, you know, written this book and talked to my husband so, so constantly about emotional labor for a year. Mm. Um, He did so well. So I he knew I had written this article, um, but it was really the first time that I had written anything personal about my relationship. And of course, the first time I do, and it's slightly negative, it goes, you know, mega viral. (laughs) And so I think that was a little strange for him. Um, He was a little bit worried that people would see that article and think, oh, he's, you know, this bad guy. And I was like, no, you know, people are going to look at this and see their own experiences. They're not going to be, you know, going after you. And that definitely seemed to be the response that we got. and then when it came time to write the book, I, you know, we sat down and I, I asked him if he felt good about me moving forward and, you know, kind of digging up old wounds and going, you know, going into these places that are not going to be comfortable for him to read about. And he was so supportive from beginning to end. Uh, when I gave him first pages to read, he would point out spots where he was like, I think you're... I think you're letting me get away a little bit too easy here. <laughs> and so he's he's really been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, but the biggest change has come through all of the conversations we've had throughout the process as mm-hmm. I was trying to work out what I wanted to say about emotional labor. He really gained this deeper understanding of it. And I think, you know, I, I write a lot in the book about the writing of <laughs> the book itself. Mm. And uh, what that looked like. And there's really this transformation by the end of the book in my own relationship and what that looked like when I started the book and what it looks like by the end of the book. And it's by no means perfect, but there has been so much progress in my husband's understanding of emotional labor and the way that we divide things and the way that we understand each other in this really new and deep way, because he better understands, um, you know, this really integral part of my life. I'm definitely going to come back to the actual kind of practicalities of, you know, shifting the needle on the division of emotional labour, because you are definitely an expert on it. But I still want to understand why it is that the burden tends to fall more heavily on women. I read um, a statistic, according to McKinsey, the consulting firm, Globally, women perform around 75% of the total world share of emotional labor. And I think their definition of emotional labor was very much the one that you are using as well. And I wondered what you think, what are the factors underpinning that? Why does the burden of emotional labor tend to fall more heavily on women than it does on men? I think really everything that I researched in this book pointed to the fact that we are raised to see emotional labor as this natural part of being Mm. a woman and so there's these really deeply ingrained gender roles and 
I think what is really special about emotional labor is that it's invisible work. So unlike these really unfair divisions of labor in, you know, the workforce or the domestic labor that we do in the home, like the actual physical work, Mm. we have men helping us with that at home. Uh, But it's not it's not equal when we're the ones that are doing all of that mental and emotional work. And because we can't see it, it's much harder to change uh, than something that you can point to and you can see with your eyes how unfair it is. Um, You know, you really have to like write out a list of everything you're thinking in order to see where this big, you know, division lies. Mm. And so I think that's why it has stayed even when so much has changed in our society because we are not realizing it. Um, you know, we didn't even realize that it was happening. I write I write about that in the book that, you know, it, it took me a long time to even realize that I was doing this emotional labor to, you know, put a finger on it, to put a word to it. And so I think that's what makes it so tricky. We're raised in a, in a culture that really reinforces these gender roles. And then it it really takes you, you know, looking at this and recognizing it uh, in order for us to make any progress or change. You've talked a bit there about gender roles and kind of traditional gender roles and what we expect of men and what we expect of women. And I think that is really important. How do things change when it comes to same sex relationships or does it change? It does change and it doesn't. So what I found when I was talking to same sex couples was that these different roles still happened. There was still someone who would take on the bulk of emotional labor. And sometimes that was, well, usually it was the person that enjoyed the work more or that was more proficient in that type of work. And the division would still happen, maybe not to such a degree as in heterosexual relationships. But what I found is once they began talking about it, they were able to change things and move the needle so much more quickly. And it was, you know, a bit frustrating for me because I would follow up after a few months and these couples would have completely changed (laughs) their dynamics. And I was like, I'm writing the book on the subject and I feel like I'm just inching along towards progress. Mm. And it's because, you know, same-sex couples or gender non-conforming couples are not stuck in these gender roles. They don't have that same societal pressure to conform in that specific way. And so I think there's a lot to learn there about, you know, coming to a place of equal ground and rebuilding, because uh, I think there's so much that we get wrapped up in in heterosexual relationships that has to do with those old gender roles, whether we realize it or not. That is so fascinating um, and also not that surprising, I think, when I think about it. Um, yeah, it, it didn't it didn't shock me, but it, it was a bit frustrating when I was like, gosh, look at look at how good you're doing. I'm literally the expert and <laughs> can't quite manage it. Um, and moving into kind of the sphere of work, you talk about I really sort of completely fell you know, in love with this section where you were talking about work, because a lot of what I do with my writing is talking about careers and women in the workplace. And in fact, I first discovered your work and your writing because I was kind of researching careers. And you talk about you know women needing to perform emotional labor in their interactions at work and the onus being on women to perform emotional labor to, you know, pacify male egos. And I guarantee that any woman 
listening to this will identify with that. But I would like you to kind of define or give examples as to what emotional labor in the workplace tends to look like. Yes. So emotional labor in the workplace, and especially as I, you know, look at it in the book, comes a lot closer to that original definition of emotional labor where you're keeping your emotions tamped down Mm. while you're dealing with the emotions of those around you, usually uh, your male peers. Now, it looks very different in a service sector job than it does in, you know, a corporate job. But the sort of, you know, survival techniques you're using are very much the same in that you are constantly thinking about how the other person is going to react and how that is going to affect your livelihood. Mm. Uh, Because whether you are trying to pacify a boss or a client uh, in order to keep your job or your, you know, I mean, that that's pretty similar across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, the stakes are just much higher when you're on the lower end of the spectrum. Mm. Um, so it's things like, I always think of, you know, the best example of emotional labor in the workplace is the amount of thoughts you put into sending emails so they don't sound yes. too assertive or rude. <laughs> yes. I have had so many conversations with women about email. And this is something that even I am really, really you know, hyper aware of when Mm. I'm sending emails, I get this sort of anxiety when I am sending like a quick one line email that I am not, you know, adding in flowery or apologetic language to, um, even when I'm sending it to other women. Mm. And I, I don't know any men who feel that same sort of anxiety about sending an email. I've talked to so many and they're just like, why, I mean, why would you feel weird about sending an email that says what it needs to say? I think it's <laughs> funny because I remember when I first started working and I'm generally, uh, I think most people who know me would say that I'm quite a direct person. And I definitely remember entering the world of work and sort of seeing how emails were sent. I, I remember texting one of my friends um uh, I just started a new job and I texted her and I was like, everyone here puts like kisses on the end of their emails and like they all start their emails with, hey, hope you're well. And I thought it was really false and weird and I was like, just get to the point. But by the time I'd been working for a couple of years, I'd completely a- adapted that way of, you know, sending emails and kind of br- dressing things up in kind of nicey, nicey language. I don't necessarily think it's something that women naturally do. I think it's something that you observe others doing and you're like, this is how I need to behave to get ahead in the workplace. Yes, absolutely. And it is something that we, you know, feel this very strong need to do. And we also do that, you know, in our personal interactions at Mm. work, we have to be a little bit more accommodating and, you know, sort of dress up our ideas in this apologetic language in order to not seem threatening to those around us. And it's, it's something that is so clearly a double standard when you look at the way that men operate in the same position. They do not have the same set of, you know, etiquette that they need to (laughs) adhere to Mm. in order for people to listen to them. Mm. And that is not true of women. Mm. We have a lot that we have to do in order to, you know, have our words heard. And even sometimes we can go through all of the right steps and we're still going to be ignored. And where does office housework kind of fall within the spectrum of emotional labor? Is it a form of emotional labor? 
Yes, and I do address that in the book as well. Mm. I think uh, if there is office housework to be done, um, you know, a party to be planned, after work drinks to be, you know, (laughs) had, there is usually a woman that is doing all of that work. There Mm. is someone who is asked to get the coffee, even though it is not their job. Mm. Um, And I think that that's more of a quick fix than the emotional labor that, you know, is in the email sending and in the boardroom, um, because I think that's a little bit easier to point to and address and say, hey, we need to rotate this schedule. So how would you actually, let's get into the kind of the practicalities of addressing that expectation within, you know, workplaces for women to do all those little tasks, whether it's, you know, organizing team birthday cards and all those little things. How would you recommend that women broach that topic? So I think that one is pretty simple. I mean, it's still it is still going to feel very difficult to bring up because of the way that, you know, we're trained to take on everything that is thrown at us. Mm. Uh, but that one's an easy one to say, you know, hey, I I can't do this every single time. Maybe we could do a rotating schedule with some, you know, some of my other peers. Um, you know, you can just rely on the work that you're actually supposed to be doing and say, hey, I've got this deadline coming up. And so I need someone else to take over this. Uh, It's, you know, a little bit easier to address that than it is to address the fact that people expect you to, you know, send a smiley face at the end of your email Mm. or (laughs) expect you to, you know, apologize every time you present a new idea or, you know, ask, ask very deferentially about, a a raise um, instead of just stating your case and being done with it. I read a really interesting study um, in the Harvard Review and the Harvard Business Review where they suggested that women are actually more likely to be asked to do these, they called them non-promotable tasks, but essentially office housework. Um, But they're also more likely to agree to do them than men. And they're also, I thought this is really interesting, they're more likely to volunteer for office housework than men are. And I wondered what yeah. you made of that. So I think when it comes, I mean, none of this surprises me, but mm. I think what might surprise some women is the volunteering mm. to do this. That's work. what surprised me. Yes. And so that seems like the piece that is, you know, like, oh gosh, why, you know, why would you do that? And the thing is, women need to earn this likability that mm. men do not have to earn in order to promote. And so a lot of women think that by doing these household tasks, um, by doing the, you know, office housework, as you put it, that they can sort of gain those brownie points to, you know, be likable. Yeah. Because that is a huge issue still for women in the workforce, especially in more higher powered careers, is that they can't just be good at what they do. They have to be likable in the process, mm-hmm. which is really what all of this emotional labor comes down to is that we have to keep everything running smoothly, but we've got to be likable in Mm. the process. And that's really where, you know, a lot of this work comes in is in making ourselves likable under this very specific set of patriarchal rules. And how does doing this office housework or emotional labor affect women's careers, if at all? Well, I mean, I think there's a myriad of ways that it can affect our work. And the main one is, is that these 
small tasks, um, you know, the office housework, it's taking us away from the more important work that we could be doing. Mm. And the same goes of all of the extra steps that we are taking in order to, you know, think through those emails to make sure that we are, you know, not coming off as too blunt or too forceful. We are taking so much of our energy and putting it towards, you know, being likable and not being direct that we are hampering our our careers. And the the really frustrating part of it is, is that it's one of those catch 22s if we do not go through, you know, these proper channels and the people at the top are, you know, expecting you to because they expect women to behave in this certain way. And the people at the top are almost always going to be men that are deciding your fate. Then there's really, you know, there's no way around it. But mm. it is. It's hampering our careers because we cannot do the work that needs to be done. We are not tending to our best and highest purpose mm when we are concerning ourselves with emotional labor in the workplace. I think that's why the Harvard study called them non-promotable tasks. It's like, it's definitely work. It's just, is this actually going to count in your favor when it comes to progressing at work? Probably not. Yeah. I mean, when it comes down to review time, like, oh yeah, they'll have a great, you know, they'll have this great camaraderie with you and mm. they'll, you know, they'll really like you. But when they actually look on paper as to, you know, who who's done the most here? Mm. You who has been doing all of this extra work and being extra nice and, you know, making sure that everyone likes them or, you know, the man next to you who has just been head down focused on his work because he has that privilege. But I feel like to sort of play devil's advocate a bit, I feel like you're making it sound easier to push back on it than perhaps the reality, because I'm I'm now freelance and self-employed but I remember how difficult it was to find a way of pushing back against these things I had a manager who sometimes he sat next to the printer and I sat kind of quite far away from it and he would send things to the printer and email me to come and pick it up and put it on his desk but I couldn't find a way of saying to him you were asking me to do these things because I am a woman and you know I was junior to him but like this was obviously taking the piss um and I feel like I never found the way I'm much better at pushing back on emotional labor now that I'm self-employed. And I feel like, oh, you know, I have my income comes from a lot of different places. So I don't really rely on one person for my income in the same way. But I wonder whether it's slightly difficult and more um, slightly different and more difficult for women who work nine to fives to push back on this. Yeah, I think it definitely is. And I think um, the problem is we're when we're talking about these sort of communal um you know, emotional labor tasks, it's much easier to push back on because there are more witnesses to it. Yeah. In that example, there isn't. There's just someone who is your senior that is, you know, putting this this work on your plate. Mm. And it's not like you can say, oh, well, you know, send it over to the next person mm. because it's something they should be doing themselves. Mm. And so so it is really difficult because that, that right there is just, you know, it, it probably might not even have been a conscious one, but a, a real abuse of their power. Mm. And they feel entitled to do that. So it is, it is, you know, really difficult to change that way of thinking. Mm. And how does because emotional labor affect different women um, differently? For instance, women of color or 
women from different sort of ends of the class spectrum. Is there a difference in the way it affects women? Yes, absolutely. And I I talk about this a little bit in the in the book as well. You know, if you if you want to talk to someone who is good at emotional labor, talk to a woman of color because they do so much more emotional labor than anyone else. Mm. I mean, really. Amen to that. (laughs) It's like so, so much more than Mm. anyone else. And the reason is that they are they are dealing with these power dynamics from so many different angles. And really emotional labor, you know, as we were just talking about, is a lot it has a lot to do with power structures. Mm. And that's why, you know, women are experiencing it in this way that men are not. Uh, But when you come to women of color, they are experiencing it more than white women ever could imagine. Because the emotional labor that comes into really justifying their lived experience is so much greater and the stakes are so much higher. Mm. It's, you know, it's a lot more difficult to deal with than, you know, trying to get get the family out the door in the morning. Mm. It's a lot more difficult to try and, you know, justify your humanity Mm. in a way. I feel Um, like the biggest source of emotional labor for me when it comes to, you know, where my race is relevant is actually trying to make white people feel comfortable um, about perhaps having done something offensive or and then I'm like oh no no don't worry it's not that bad I mean I don't do that anymore to be honest because I've just gotten a bit older and wiser but I feel like for the people of color that I know having to spend it's kind of what you you know having to expend energy making other people feel good and comfortable at your own expense is where it most often comes into play educating other people around you I think is a really big thing that I've I've seen from women of color is that they they are trying to educate everyone around them uh, at this really deep emotional expense and the thing that is very frustrating about that and the thing that I you know I'm starting to find frustrating with emotional labor in my life is that there there is so much information out there so many people have already covered this it's so ridiculous that you know, people feel entitled to your time and your emotional energy as you try to explain these things that you, you know, it, you know, you know, the information is out there that, an e- you know, it's very, very Googleable things that people could figure out on their own, but they don't want to do that work themselves. They're using you for that work. Just to kind of finish on quite a practical note, how women can push back against emotional labor. You've talked a little bit about work, but specifically at home, how do you go about dividing the share of emotional labor more evenly? And how have you gone about doing that? So it's been a really long process, um, which I I sort of cover a lot of uh, my own personal journey with emotional labor in the book. Mm. And I think what a lot of it has come down to is that... um, it is not this blow up fight anymore. Every time we talk about emotional labor, we talk about it a lot and we don't talk about it in the sense that like, I am mad at you because you have left your socks on the floor and because you are undervaluing my work. Uh, We started to talk about it in a much broader sense. Me and my husband are talking now about, you know, these different 
things that we picked up along the way, like the different ways that we were raised and Mm. what the expectation was of him and what it does of me and sort of taking that, you know, broader view of why this imbalance happened, because I don't, you know, I, I love my husband. He's a really good man. And I think that he would never have purposefully put all of this emotional labor on me. Mm-hmm. And now he is doing the work to undo that burden and has done really well with it. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, needs to be there is a desire to, you know, be a full partner. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, what I've heard a lot of is that um, a lot of women don't have that. A lot of women don't have partners who want full partnership. Um, and I think that's... That's a that's whole nother really... question. That's at, that's sort of not necessarily something that's within your remit uh, to yeah. fix. Um, I mean, yeah. is it, you know, but getting into the nitty gritty, is it something like writing down like who does what and divvying them up or are there... Like, you know, if someone is listening to this show now and they're thinking, oh, my God, I relate to this so much. This is me. I want to go home and talk to my boyfriend or my husband or even, you know, my flatmate who is just a friend in a romantic way. But as a guy, because I've definitely had this as well with male friends who you're not romantically involved with. But that gender dynamic kind of comes into play again. How do you go about, you know, literally divvying things up? So I... (laughs) I I wrote about this a little bit in the book that I tried uh, divvying it up. I tried writing down all of the things and um, it it didn't quite work out. I think I think everyone's different. Maybe it'll work out for some people to write it all down and then divvy it up. Mm. Uh, But really, it's not in the physical tasks themselves, but in, you know, really noticing what needs to be done and noticing the needs of others. And I think that's a a pretty long process to learn if you haven't been practicing it your whole life like women have. Mm. Um, But I think what it really starts with is having those, having those conversations very consistently. And then for women, we don't really get to control, you know, the behaviors of others as much emotional labor as we do and hard as we may try. So I think one of the first things we can do is set our boundaries when it comes to emotional labor. Mm. Uh, One thing that is really difficult for most women is setting boundaries um, with other people and with the work that we are willing to put forth uh, because we're supposed to say yes to everything with a smile. And (laughs) that, that leaves us with very little breathing room. Um, So I think setting boundaries and how much emotional labor you want to do is really, really key. And this can be really difficult. And I know that because I have three very young children and they require a lot of emotional labor. Mm -hmm. And so that is a conversation like you need to have with your partner uh, if, if you can about, you know, divvying up that emotional work and that emotional labor. And in the workplace, if, you know, if a woman, she's listened to this podcast, she's like, right, I'm going to go in And when, you know, a colleague who was not senior to me, I've had this happen to me, a colleague who was not senior to me kind of turned to me in a meeting and was like, can you take notes? And I was not pleased about that. But how can you push back against having to do those kind of office housework things without, I don't know, seeming like a bitch, which is kind of what women tend to get christened. Like, do you have to do it with a smile on your face, which is 
a form of emotional labour in and of itself? Or, you know, what what should someone who is worried about kind of getting blowback from that um, bear in mind? So I think one thing to bear in mind is, especially in the workplace, there is not going to be a lot of escaping the blowback yet. Um, I focus a lot of my energy in the book on talking about personal dynamics, family dynamics, because I think in the home is the easiest place to start mm. um, to change the culture. When you're in the workplace, the culture has not changed, even if you are changing. Mm. Um, so, you know, be prepared for the blowback. But just start in really small ways, I think. Start deleting apologetic language from your emails a little bit at a time. Uh, you know, maybe push that notepad over to your junior <laughs> associate so they can take the notes. Mm. I mean, you know, you you have to you have to take a stand and mm. it's not going to be comfortable. Uh, but it needs to be done. Mm. And there needs to be a lot of us doing it. That's, you know, really what it comes down to is we need we need to push back and we need to do it in, in a big way um, and it, it's going to be difficult I think is the thing that we we can't really escape at this point okay um, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us all today Gemma um, it's been really brilliant talking to you and yes everyone do go out and buy a copy of Fed Up thank you so much for having me On today's segment of Ask a Tega, I've got a letter from someone who's concerned about the lack of diversity in their office and not sure how best to broach the topic with their boss. Here it is. Dear Ortega, I work in a really amazing tech startup and have a boss who's incredibly supportive. He not only wants me to be a great designer for the company, but he also seems to genuinely care about my overall professional development. Which brings me on to my current dilemma, which for various reasons is quite a sensitive one. The tech industry is really well known for its lack of diversity. Our company had four female employees out of 20 when I first joined. And although there are now more women working at the company, there's still only one person of colour in the entire company, which has grown to around 30 or 40 of us. Yes, you read that right. One person of colour out of around 35 people. I'm not sure if I should say something about this to my boss because I refuse to believe that the company is hiring on a bias. Yet as new people join, I can't help but notice the total absence of cultural diversity. We don't have HR department as of yet, because as a tech startup, we're apparently too cool for that. Is it my place and responsibility to say something, or am I just sticking my nose in where it doesn't belong? Yours sincerely, odd one out. Uh, There are so many alarm bells ringing here um, for me reading this letter. I think just as a sort of first point, the fact that at that size, your company doesn't have an HR department. It's absolutely wild. I know that it's like a really trendy startup thing to operate like that. And it's sort of part of this really cliche Silicon Valley startup mentality of like move fast and break stuff and really obvious and basic business things are seen as boring. But your company has long since passed the point where they should have hired HR personnel, even if it's just one person, even if it's just one person working part time. Um, Having a robust HR department isn't really an optional thing or it shouldn't be viewed as that um i wouldn't be surprised if the lack of an hr team means there are other really basic workplace requirements that aren't being met by your company um but i'm kind of digressing a little bit and just to answer your question really directly is it your place yes is it your responsibility absolutely not 
Um, I hate to break to you, but your company is definitely hiring on a bias. I know you said that you refuse to believe that, but that is what is happening here. I'm not saying that, you know, whoever is in charge of hiring or the founders are doing it consciously or that they're straight up racist, but there is clearly an unconscious bias at play here. If out of, let's say, 35 employees, only one person is a person of colour, that isn't just a coincidence. These people are hiring in their own image, which means hiring other white people. So what should you do about it? Well, the way I see it is that you kind of have three options. The first option is that you could try and broach this topic with your boss. Sounds like you have a good relationship with him and that you might be able to be quite open with him. Um, But something that I would just kind of point out and kind of caveat this with is that in my experience, people don't like being accused of racism or even having that insinuated or having insinuated that they treat people differently on account of their skin colour, even if they are. Uh, so I'd be really careful how you tread with that. Um, I think a sort of a good in might be maybe, you know, looking for an online article or finding an online article that dives into the lack of diversity within tech and email it to him and just kind of say something like, oh, I was reading this and it made me realise, you know, looking around our company, we don't actually have a whole lot of diversity in our office. And maybe use that as an opportunity to kind of open up a conversation with him about how you can counteract that, say that it's something you'd be interested in talking about, maybe leading kind of diversity efforts on that front. Um, and maybe, you know, the solution for them is hiring an HR person one day a week whose sole responsibility is to look at upping the diversity sort of quotient within the office. Um, and, you know, you can always kind of sell that in by pointing out that diverse workforces tend to be more profitable. In fact, they are more profitable than those that aren't. So if, you know, you need to kind of justify the added cost in what might be a lean startup, that's a really good point. Um, but yeah, that's your first option. I think, unfortunately, given that you are yourself a person of colour, that kind of suggestion is just coming from you. It's just going to land a bit differently than if you were white and if that suggestion came from a white person because you obviously have a personal stake or involvement in the issue because you are a person of colour and it's harder for you to be perceived as offering up that viewpoint from an objective place which is really unfortunate Um, and so your second option I think might be consider getting a white ally Um, and by that I mean you know why don't you kind of test the waters with your colleagues are there people who might be sympathetic to this who maybe have noticed it themselves and feel equally uncomfortable with it maybe it's getting you know a little task force that's like two or three of you and joining up and approaching it with the powers that be together um I personally think that's actually your best bet because then you're not going out on a limb on your own um and unfortunately in this sort of situation white people tend to listen to other white people more than they listen to people of color and there's all sorts of reasons why that's the case but I do think that is definitely the truth um and the last option is that you can definitely do nothing and say nothing. Um, In your letter, you asked whether it's your responsibility to address it, and it's absolutely not. Um, I would, you know, absolutely respect if you choose to say nothing about it. I mean, it obviously depends on how uncomfortable it's making you. Um, But yeah, nobody really likes the sort of even the insinuation of like the R word, and by that I mean racist. You know, it makes white people hypersensitive and defensive, and that can really blow up in your face. And I would only recommend you actually broaching the topic at work, whether you're kind of involving like a white ally or not if you think highly enough of your communication skills to talk about this in a way that won't make your colleagues and your boss defensive and that is something that only you can be the gauge of um and you know it's worth thinking about whether or not you actually want to take on this additional emotional labor you know we've just talked i've just talked about that with Gemma, and you know women of color have to take on a great share of the emotional labor burden at work and this is a perfect example of it the fact that you're even having to think about it um it's perfectly understandable if you choose that 
to not get involved. You know, I'd love to say that you should march in there and, you know, shake the table and speak your truth and all of that. But honestly, there is a difference between the kind of response that people would give in an ideal scenario and the reality of actually having to, you know, go to work every day and find it enjoyable. Um, If you were white, my response to you on this would be entirely different. Uh, If there are any white people listening to this, I'm sure there are. You should 100% be doing more to advocate for people of colour in your workplaces um, because really you have nothing to lose. But I'm always of the firm belief that the oppressed or the marginalised, you know, communities, whether it's people of colour, whether it's LGBT, whether it's to say people, they are under no obligation to be martyrs to the cause because it's like a double whammy of suffering. Um, And yeah, I think the last thing I should say is, you know, this, I've been in this situation myself being, you know, one of few people of colour in a majority white workplace. And I found it really tough psychologically. And I wouldn't be surprised if you are finding it tough psychologically and emotionally. Um, So I hope that outside of work that you do have people to vent to and share your experiences with and if you don't I really urge you to find them so that you know this experience doesn't really start to massively weigh you down Um, and that's kind of my last bit of advice is make sure that you're really properly taking care of yourself. If you've got a career question you'd like my advice on during next month's Ask a Tega segment just email podcast at womenwho.co and let me know what's on your mind. And that's it for this month. Thank you for tuning in. For more career inspiration and information, follow Women Who at Women Who on Instagram and Twitter or head to our website www.womenwho.co forward slash newsletter to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup. You can find me at Otega Uagba on Instagram and Twitter and the link to buy a copy of Gemma's book Fed Up is in the show notes. I thoroughly recommend it. If you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe and as always, please leave us a lovely five-star review whilst you're there. See you next time. This is NTS NTS Radio. Radio. Radio.